accessible and is a benefit for Bay Area Country Dance Society and First Unitarian Church of San Jose. For more information, call 408-341-9123 or www.bacds.org slash SPC. No experience or partner needed and all ages are welcome. 408-341-9123. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. Those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is... Jennifer Stone, reading to you from my memoir, Telegraph Avenue, Then. I think I'll begin, I'll begin at the beginning, yes, uh, with the foreword. Uh, Someone once wrote, only the dead tell the truth, and then, not for some years. (laughs) So, too. This journal, this record of the past. Ah, journals tell the truth. If you let them soak long enough over time, flesh falls from the bones. We get to the marrow of things. Our myths marinate. The symbols come to the surface. What happened is only history. What matters is mythos. Most journal writing appears elliptical. The thoughts skip like stones across the surface of a life. Like a seascape seen from a moving train, beauty is glimpsed rather than known. The trivial and the profound get equal time. The sincerity of the moment dies quickly in a journal. The first rush or gush of feeling loses its suds. Honesty comes with a slow synthesis. The pieces collected here have been synthesized from originals which were often too diffuse, too muddy for publication. But as Gertrude Stein said, mud settles. I have tried to make the mud 
take it and make adobe, you know, adobe bricks, little mud, little straw, enough bricks to build a small house for a kind of female oversoul. Synthesis, like style, has something to do with sedimentation, the settling of the sand of thought and the leaves of emotion into a compost heap of prose from which a poem may grow or a story ferment. For some of us, the compost heap itself is worth study. <laughs> Even blue mold is a map of dream. That's a line from a Japanese poet. I've forgotten his name. In the conventional novel, there is exposition and narrative leading to insight or what we used to call the aha moment. In school, we spoke of this as the vines, that is, the narrative, and the grapes. Aha experience, yes. I just wanted to crush the grapes and make wine. Writing as I experience it means wringing out the heart-mind until it stops lying. In a journal, it's possible to gnaw on the existential bone all day and then use the bone to make stone soup for supper. Poems begin in the journal. They often abort there. Trauma reflected upon in tranquility can produce morally stunning insights. Literary light. It can also produce maudlin rubbish. When I first began to rework the raw material in my journals, it was all I could do to separate the garbage from the trash. But I always return to the style, the shape, the form of the notebook because the other forms bore me. Anais Nin wrote in her book, The Novel of the Future, quote, The way to recognize a dead word is that it exudes boredom. America's quintessential language poet Gertrude Stein wrote, quote, If you are a thinker, you will change the language. You will not use words the way the others do. The way others do is still pretty much the same today. Prose is prosaic, and much poetry is exclusionary. In recent years, there has been some hope that women might change the language, steal it even. Virginia Woolf wrote that all the older forms had become hardened by the time the woman writer took up the pen. But she thought the novel might still be soft in woman's hands. Woolf suggested that she might knock it into new shapes, use the novel as an outlet for the poetry in her. For it is the poetry 
wrote Virginia, which is still denied an outlet. Wolfe wrote of the tyranny of the literary establishment, quote, If a writer were a free man and not a slave, if he could base his work upon his own feeling and not upon convention, there would be no plot, no comedy, no tragedy, no love interest or catastrophe in the accepted style, and perhaps not a single button sewn on as the Bond Street tailors would have it. Uh, that's the end of the quote from Virginia Woolf. We know that women, too, are slaves, yes, not free men in the world. Woolf wrote in 1928, I thought of all the women's novels that lie scattered like small pockmarked apples in an orchard. They lie about the second-hand bookshops of London. It's the flaw in the center that rotted them, she, the woman writer, had altered her values in deference to the opinion of others. Well, expanding on this theory, which is set forth in her essay, A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf wrote that women are forbidden to write about the life of the body. They were, are, inhibited by patriarchal taboo. Today, bright-eyed young women tell me that this is no longer the case. I show them my files, files labeled blood taboo, together with the terse responses from editors, <laughs> the few editors who bothered to read my works on female biological experience. Publication is out of the question. When it comes to a woman's physical life, only the transmuted and abstracted material ever sees print. Oh, uh, of course, uh, F poems are in great demand. It's the maternal material that is anathema to the male stream editor. I just edited that sentence into oblivion. <laughs> to write about babies or gynecology, or even about real female sexual experience, female sexual needs, that's all about as popular with editors and publishers as writing about skin disease. Content is censored just as much today as in the past centuries. Form is also severely censored. Writers who go outside the lines when they draw pictures of the world, are seldom rewarded for their efforts. This is curious because nearly every other 20th century art form has cut loose from the past. Today, painting is about paint, music is about sound, but words still cling to something very old. Like religiosity... Language has its seat in the old brain, in the reptilian brainstem of early man. Chants are as old as the dance. In the beginning was the word, and the word was sacred. Sacred text became story, and we are our stories. We will never be without our stories, 
the fables and tales, legends and myths that surround us, that comfort us with symbols and songs. As Joseph Campbell tells us, ritual is enacted myth. Our rites change as our myths do witness the rock concert. There's an ancient rite made new. What modern writers need to find is the structure that supports words today. New Age stories may not need ends or beginnings or even middles. Gertrude Stein wrote, quote, Stories have gone, just as representative painting has gone. Perhaps representative painting has gone because we have photography. Perhaps stories have gone because social structure as we have conceived it is going. Many of the stories of Western civilization have been internalized in our culture. The post-literate generation can watch a ten-minute video about the end of the world by ice or fire, and no one needs to refer them to revelation, although that might be nice. The young do not need to be told about original sin or the legend of the fall. They've heard it all somewhere. These myths stain the culture, soak the soul. It is my own hope that we're a bit sick of that old mythos that we're overdue for a paradigm shift away from judgment day away from dread and damnation as social control, and toward a new pagan pragmatism, genuine nature religion, Green Party politics. If this is the direction of the new millennium, literature will get a break. We'll be able to let go of linear time, that sense of time, that only leads to death. Poets know these lines, these linear lines are only circles, after all. No matter where we go in time, we always meet ourselves coming back. So, too, in this present work, I find the person who wrote my pages is no longer with me. But, she meets me coming back through the existential steps toward consciousness. She is still asking questions. The answers are forgotten now. Many of the individual pieces included have been published over the years in different magazines. I use the working title Loose Leaves from a Little Black Book. Uh, I noticed... Several of these pieces were published next to Charles Bukowski, uh, and the present editor asked me to put a new title on the book. So it is called Telegraph Avenue Then, because it covers the period when uh, Berkeley was basically uh, the center of the known universe. I hope that placing these pieces together between two covers will make a kind of marriage uh,
or any way, you know, uh, a liaison, reading them over now, they seem to have the aura of an old photo album. Uh, perhaps what is left out speaks the loudest. Anais Nin once wrote, Trust the fragments. Over the years with my own students, I used the phrase, Trust the dust. Dust is never deliberate. <laughs> yes, we are what we throw away, like the past. It just accumulates. It becomes an ever-expanding present. In the journal... I can savor the moment and then let it go. Eternity happens when we can awaken into the present moment, the moment which includes all that has ever been. Then the moving fingers, piety and wit move on. <laughs> yes, I remember when I finished this uh writing a uh, my shortest ever poem someone published it it's called whatever was is the uh, epigraph to telegraph avenue then is from oscar wilde's poem the harlot's house we watched the ghostly dancers spin to sound of horn and violin like black leaves wheeling in the wind the first entry here is autumn 1966, Lafayette, California. Last year's Christmas tree lights are still strung out on the mantelpiece. One by one, they burn out. It's August, September. There are still three lights burning early December 1966 I get a divorce I'd rather be lonely alone my next door neighbor buys my house she wants to fix it up she says rent it for income she says the driveway is buried in leaves the trees and vines have grown over the long wooden porches across the roof until the window grew dark in my bedroom. So now I will cut my way out of my cul-de-sac. I will leave these woods which are my backyard, the graves of all the dead pets will be deserted. The neighbor comes with buckets of white paint. One color, she says. White or beige, she says. Then use accessories for accents. White paint across the wooden beams of the ceilings. Over the bricks of the fireplace, there is no stopping her. By the window in my bedroom, there is a vine creeping up the wall. Once the roses grew into my room, falling through the window. She paints over the vine in her haste, then stops to scrape it loose. Pull it hard, cut it down. 
As I trek back and forth, packing the trunk of my car, I hear her muttering to herself, You'd think nobody'd lived here. The end of December 1966. Buy Indian tea, lemon shampoo, cinnamon candles, a bottle of Irish mist. Go to a coffee house in Berkeley, pick up a man, bring him home to desecrate my marriage bed. Afterwards we shower. He looks clinically at my stomach scar, my small breasts. I forget about the rites of passage, the desecration ritual I'd planned. I reach out for affection, bury my face in his shoulder and ask forgiveness. Uh, I guess we have not seen the same movies. I expect, I expect the same response I got ten years ago. He is about my age, but still, he is a young man, strange. I dress, light the cinnamon candles, throw pillows on the floor, logs on the fire, pour the Irish mist, music and incense, dutiful domestic. My son falls out of his crib, soaking wet, dreaming of spiders again. I give him half a tablet of Valium and stuff him back in bed before he can make a scene. I shut the bedroom door, tight. Returning to the fireside, I discover the man has been impressed with me. After all, he's drinking my liquor and looking around. He grins. <laughs> You're ready for more, aren't you? January 1967. Wipe the peanut butter off the table and clear a space for myself, ache with guilt. Take both sons to the child care center, wait while Simon sits outside the gate to get ready, he says. He has to get his face under control. I am angry with him every morning now. Oh, sure, I made him dependent. I let him think he could always stay at home with me. Hell, he's only four. At the first place I left him, they had chicken pox. He got it. He has scars from chicken pox. His older brother, Sam, has been to school before. He knows the ropes. But, oh, Jesus Christ, suppose Simon is a sissy. Then one day, after school, Sam tells me about the room at the center. The room with no windows where they put you in and lock the door, and you stay there alone until you're all good again. An old lady put my four-year-old kid in that room every day. Oh, well, says Sam, my great big six-year-old kindergartner. Everyone tortures little kids. I get drunk. This is how it starts then, the self-pity, the whine of woman alone, woman with child on her back. Woman with woe, wringing of hands, getting to be such a bore. No one listens to her anymore. Simon is four years old. He doesn't say much. This morning, February 1967, the ants are marching six abreast across the kitchen sink. Simon made an ant house out of his plastic Lego blocks. He put a cookie in the house. 
he went out to play. When he came in to replace the cookie with some cornflakes, he saw I had washed the sink with Lysol. Mother, he said, if you had told them you were going to kill them, they would have moved. This evening he brings me two paper clips, asks to use the silver polish. I ask him why he says the paper clips are ice skates for his mouse. I give him the silver polish, and he goes to his room. No one needs to tell Simon he doesn't have a mouse. Spring, spring, 1967. Move to Berkeley, give way to joy. Seven lovers now take the telephone to bed with me each night to talk to this one while that one sleeps beside me. I win for a change. How's this for power? Here's looking at you, kid. I ran into a brick wall and came out the other side. Now I wish to record the myth-shattering events of the afternoon of my life. Gangway, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Bunny, that is Edmund Wilson, said Edna Millay, had nineteen love affairs and just couldn't help it, poor thing. If I'm doing it, who can say I'm not the type? If only my energy doesn't give out. If only I don't get my scripts mixed. If only I don't get my throat cut. Summer 1967, we talk all night. And he is melted gold in bed. I give anything to keep him, because he allows me to be me. I may even say he encourages it, which is risky. He also has what seems to be an informed sense of humor. We laugh so much, I seem to be getting healthy again. But, damn it, sooner or later he drinks to stupor. One night he sat on the edge of my bed and set his hair on fire with his cigarette. I watched my family die of booze and fall apart like that. It terrifies me, so I threw him out. But now, sometimes remembering, I wish I'd kept him anyway and buried him in the backyard when he died and poured libations of bourbon on his grave. Fall now, September 1967. I bought this honest-to-God topless bra at the most esoteric lingerie shop in Berkeley. The European woman who owns the shop looks down her nose at the locals, taking no solace from girls who go braless. Come back and see us when you need a good brassiere, my dear, she smiles, rolling her R's. When I try on the topless bra, she assures me it is the last one in stock this season. I buy it because it gives my breasts a terrific hoist. I look in the mirror, imagine I am the Empress Josephine, with my breasts shoved up under my chin. Black, lace-covered, sharp bones lift and frame my flesh. The first time I wear it, I get black and blue marks. Poor Josephine. Napoleon said one time or another that women have no rank. Their place in life, their socioeconomic score... Depends upon the males with whom they find favor. One can find a good master, or a wise master, or a louse. 
but it's still a slave system any way you call it. A rich master may be kind and generous, but you have to stay home and pour drinks for his friends. I mean, you have to. Well, the women's movement is seeping into my psychosexual adjustment. What can I do with an unused, topless bra? I am what I throw away. That is the uh, first section of Telegraph Avenue then, a collection of fragments beginning in 1966 and ending in 1977. The second book begins in 77 and ends in 88. The third book begins in 88 and ends in 1999. <laughs> Aren't numbers wonderful? This has been Jennifer Stone. Once again, the book is Telegraph Avenue Then. I'll be uh, back with a second reading from this book next time. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the George Orwell's novel, 1984, was written as a warning. He would be shocked to know that many of his fictional horrors are being realized today. KPFA and Pacifica will air a 15-hour marathon broadcast of 1984 on Tuesday, June 27th, for the first time since the original broadcast in 1975. The classic cover to